0: Seth? Thank you. Two of them? I don't know. You just want to go? Thanks for the help. Hey guys, ladies. So, we're going to be tackling a short section of scripture tonight. Let's go verse by verse through the next 35. Hopefully, you guys, I'm just kidding. Feel free to laugh. Yeah. Awesome. So, if I don't know you, my name's Evan. Um, I'm one of the teaching pastors down here. Um, There's three of us and kind of rotate in and out, Um, and it's my night tonight. So we've been going through the uh, book of Mark for the last four and a half months. Put that down. Um, And uh, we're gonna be finished with the entire book of Mark um, right around Easter time. Um, So we're gonna be kind of cutting off big chunks um, so that way we can get through the entire book in about a nine-month period. But the real goal of ours is for you to walk away having a bigger understanding of who Jesus is he raised He was raised from the dead, so his characteristics do not change, and who his disciples were. you know they passed away, but the human factor that is in them is also within us and so as we go through these passages week after week that 's what I really encourage you to walk away with, figure out all right, who is Jesus? what are we seeing about who Jesus is tonight, and then who are his disciples? How does this apply to us? How does this apply to me? that makes sense um, so before we hop into um, what we're going to be looking at tonight, Um, just take a moment with me and pray. Um, Honestly, that's the only way we get anything good in this world is if um, God speaks into our reality. So, uh, God, I know you're here. Uh, I know you're within a lot of us. Um, We are here to seek you, um, to make you a priority. So I ask that you would bless those um, meager efforts and give us something um, that can change our world. We love you. Amen. Okay, so before we get into the verses, what I would like to do is remind you what type of book this is. So the Gospels are known as historical narratives. That means that they were written by either an eyewitness or eyewitnesses were interviewed and then the text was written down. So Mark was a disciple of Peter. You think about who Peter was. He was in the inner circle of the three. And so he saw firsthand all these things happen. So, Mark is simply writing down what Peter tells him. Matthew and John were both disciples. Luke was a physician that gathered together all these people's um, accounts and then wrote them, wrote them down. And so, it's important to remember that about the Gospels that this isn't just a bunch of fairy tales or stories that were collaborated over time. This is actual history written down for us. And honestly, If you look at any of the evidence, the history, the validity of the Bible far outweighs any other ancient text. So the fact that we believe that Alexander the Great was who he was or we believe anything about the Roman Empires or even Christopher Columbus or anything was because historians wrote down what they saw or what they were told. And we believe that is truth. And if we're willing to do that, then we need to believe what we read in the Gospels as fact. You know, there was thousands and thousands and thousands of people. There was like 15,000 people that received the bread in what we were going to look at tonight. And so they could have easily disputed that did not happen the way it happened. But none of them spoke up, and so it must have been true. So just keep that in mind as we approach this. This is actual history. This truly did happen. So what I want to do tonight, since it's been a few weeks and we're halfway through the book, I just want to look back at the last six chapters and figure out, all right, what is Mark telling us about Jesus? What are the major points that he wants us to walk away with? And there's three of them total, and I think I have it. We're going to look at these separately, and each one of these could be like a 30, 45-minute presentation, so we're going to go quick through them. But Jesus is the Messiah. What is Jesus' motivation? And then finally... Jesus' followers are flawed, but still given a role in his ministry. Alright, so with that first one, um, let's just kind of pick apart our right, Jesus is the Messiah. Now we need to understand what the Messiah is. You probably have heard that term a lot. He is the Messiah. We worship the Messiah. It's simply simply translated, it means the anointed one. Right, somebody was anointed for a specific act or service that they were to perform. In this case, it's God's anointed or chosen servant that would redeem humanity from the curse of the fall. So think back Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Adam and Eve disobey God, just like we all do all the time. We choose to trust ourselves instead of trusting God. And at that point, the world's broken and mankind is distanced from God. At that point, Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, God says, I am going to send a redeemer. He's going to be one of Eden's offspring. And he's going to crush the head of the serpent. You guys probably know what I'm talking about. At that point, he started, he pushed the dominoes that would lead to his Messiah. Right? And this Messiah would atone mankind for their sin, total forgiveness. He would defeat the evil in this world. Satan, sin, all the byproducts. And he would restore God's creation back to its original design. I hope you're grasping this. So God, at the moment that the world is broken, said, I am going to send my Messiah. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, but he is going to do all these things. This shows you God's view on time. You know, If this interests you at all, we're going to be having a class in like a week and a half, starting on Mondays, four weeks long, looking at Jesus in the Old Testament. It's not an Old Testament overview class. It's simply looking at the God that we see in Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. Same God. All right, so back to Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, The word Christ is a Greek word for Messiah. So you've heard of Jesus Christ. That means Jesus the Messiah. So what Evidence do we have that he was God's anointed servant? So the first six chapters, we get a little bit of his teaching. You've got to think about what he was teaching, this idea of repentance, of pulling away from what you are doing and turning back to God. Right? And through his teaching, through his the way that he dealt with people, it shows a ministry of healing the broken and reconciling the lost. We're not talking just physically broken. He is reaching out to people that have been estranged by their society, that just don't know how to live their life, and they're looking for something new, and Jesus is there to embrace them and point them back to their creator, just like the Messiah would do. You know. And then obviously we got his miracles, and there's so many of them. Think about the number of healings he does of um, people with leprosy, the blind, he raises a girl from the dead. Just incredible stuff. He's casting uh, demons out of people. He even has power over nature. We see him walk on the sea here. He calms the sea another time. Unbelievable. I have never heard of anybody that has ever existed having this sort of power. Have you? Remember, historical documents recording what they saw. Imagine that. An individual having this much power over life, death, nature, the whole deal. You know, in the passage that we were looking at, Mark six forty-one through 44. Mark, if you can find that and put it up. Um, we'll just see some examples of these miracles. 41 through 44. So, taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Those who had eaten the loaves outnumbered 5,000 men. So the men were there with their their wives and their families. We're looking at like fifteen plus thousand people most likely that were fed. From five loaves and two fish. And all he did was look up, pray, and started passing that out. Absolutely incredible, right? Mind-blowing must not be real, right? But again... Written fact. People could have disputed it left and right, but it never was done. You know, later on in this um, chapter, verses 47 through 52, when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. When he saw that they were straining, that's his disciples, at the oars against an adverse wind, he, Jesus, came towards them early in the morning, walking on the sea. He intended to pass by. But when he, they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with him, and the wind ceased. You ever seen anybody walk on water? You're out in Pactola, and the storm comes in, things are getting crazy, and all of a sudden somebody just walks across the water, hops in your boat, and the wind stops. Right? Miraculous. So you've seen these instances, things that actually happened in real life are pointing to the fact that Jesus was far greater than just an ordinary man, a good teacher, whatever. He was the Messiah. You know, but the beautiful thing is that it goes even farther than this. Um... There's something called an Exodus motif. That's what theologians refer to it as. Motif is like a theme. So we see things in here that point us towards the Exodus. Now, if you guys have been in any Bible school classes growing up or seen a movie with Charleston Heston or Christian Bale, right, whatever, right? you guys know what the Exodus is. Think about all of the Israelites held captive underneath Egyptians' cruel hand. God comes in, performs all these miracles, pulls them out in order to redeem them into a relationship with him. We see evidence of that right here pointed to. So um, in verse 31, they went away to a deserted place. Did the Israelites go to a deserted place at any time during the Exodus? The wilderness, right? Mount Sinai. What happened while they were out there? How did they get fed? Bread from heaven. Where did this bread come from? Heaven. How many baskets did they end up with when the disciples collected all the goods? Twelve. How many tribes were taken out of Egypt to be redeemed by God? Twelve. Was there any part during the Exodus where they needed to have power over water? The ability to pass through water? What did Jesus do? Walked right on top of the water. you know how God caused the Red Sea to split? The wind. What does Jesus have power over? The wind. You kind of see what I'm talking about? This Exodus motif. And this isn't the only spot that happens. It's throughout Jesus' entire ministry. Now why? This is... Crucial to understand, because the reason I think it happens, it makes us think of a time when God interacted with a portion of humanity in order to redeem them from an inescapable bondage. Think about Israel in Egypt. This is not simply a trick by the author to make his audience think that Jesus must be important. Rather, it is a series of real-life events orchestrated by our Creator to show that in the same way he broke Pharaoh's hold on the Israelites and brought them into relationship with him, he is using Jesus, the Messiah, to free us from the chains of our rebellion so that we can be reconciled with the one who created us. Does that make sense? A little bit. Now, I heard a rabbi or a priest once say that, you know, I'm not sure if coincidences are real, but they sure happen a lot more when God exists. Right? I uh, received, or I ran into a good friend's brother uh, at the Y, I was coming out and he was coming in. I didn't even know he lived here. Um, he just like moved back randomly. And I just ran into him and started talking to him. And then as I was walking out the Y, I looked down at my phone and I got a text from my good friend, the boy's brother, saying, my brother's back. He needs to know God. Will you reach out to him? Literally seconds after I ran into him. And so it's just like, man, that's a crazy coincidence. Or is it the creator of everything we know intervening to show us more? Like he's doing here, to show us that... Jesus is far more than an ordinary man. He is coming to do what I did in Egypt. All right, so what people similar to you and me witnessed and recorded Jesus doing makes it impossible or downright foolish for us to consider that Jesus was just an ordinary man up to ordinary things. His miracles are incomparable. Nobody else has done that. And the way that God has caused his events to, recon, to, to be knitted together with what he did in Egypt, it's, just, it's pointing to the fact that Jesus is the one that God had set in motion from the beginning of time to come and redeem us. All right, second thing. So Jesus is the Messiah. second one I want to look at, I believe Mark's telling us about Jesus' motivation. Um, two different times in Mark, we see his motivation. First one, Mark 1, 41. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do choose, be made clean. He's healing a leopard. And then we also see it in the text that we're looking at. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So the word pity and compassion are the exact same in the original language, in Greek. We see it mentioned 12 times in the Gospels. Uh, This is why Jesus was doing what he was doing. Now the definition is feel compassion for, have pity on, have one's heart go out to someone. So take a moment to think about compassion. We've definitely felt it in our lives. Anybody watch Fox News and see any reports on Syria and everything that's happening to the... Orphans in the war torn country, there. A feeling that's evoked within you. Or a commercial with Sarah McLaughlin singing In the Arms of an Angel, and there's all these saddle animals running around. Mark, if you wouldn't mind playing it. I'm, I'm just kidding. It is on there. I did find myself watching it this afternoon. My wife made fun of me, so I promised I wouldn't show it. No, just kidding. But we we understand what compassion is, right? You think about people that are close to us or our neighbors and we see them go through hard things. It's just like this heart-wrenching feeling like, man, I wish I could help them. This is why Jesus did what he did. Now, why is that important? When you catch a glimpse of a person's deeper motivation, you are able to understand what drives them to do what they do. So it appears that Jesus' words and his miracles are motivated by his compassion for all people. This means that his purpose in teaching and healing people stems from his love for them and his desire to see them redeemed from the brokenness of this world. So he's not drawing the crowds through his miracles and his teaching for notoriety or power, but he's doing this in order to heal the crowd and change the lives of the people. Now this brokenness is not just the physical, it's also the mental and the emotional and the spiritual, the entire person Jesus is looking to redeem. We see this in Mark 10, 45, kind of what I would say the key verse of Mark is, why he is there. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So it's incredible motivation to do what he's doing. But what is even more incredible is that if he is God's Messiah, God's anointed, then he is doing what God has called him to do. Are you catching the connection? He is God's representative to the world. This means that we gain an insight into God's view of his creation, of us, humanity. If you wouldn't mind putting it up, I want you to read it too. should be the next one. God's heart... Goes out to the broken. God, the creator of everything we know, the one who allowed the sun to rise today, his heart goes out to the broken. Not just physical, mental, emotional, right, spiritual. It goes out to us. Jesus' motivation in the entire Old Testament show God as one who continually loves his people his creation, and does whatever he can to restore their brokenness. You know, Romans 5.8, in my opinion, sums it up so well. But God proves his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You've got to think about this. The moment Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the same way that we would have done, God set in motion a plan to redeem a creation that just rejected him. God did not send Jesus to die for the righteous, those who have proved themselves worthy. Out of his compassion for the spiritually broken and the morally crippled, all of us, God sent his Messiah to heal all who desired to be healed, regardless of their actions, past, present, or future. Now, the application on this is monumental. You know, I believe that the way that we view God truly affects the way that we view this life. So for atheists, for those who don't believe in a God, we are here, just a collection of cells that randomly occurred, and the moment we die, we're gone. How could that not bring in a sense of hopelessness? This is all we got. And it's kind of random. Or I believe in a God that's cruel, this malevolent creator that really doesn't care for his creation, and so I have no idea what's going to come my way. And maybe my luck will run out, or I'll do the wrong thing, and then God will just strike me dead. Talk about the fear that that would bring into your everyday existence. But as we begin to see God's understand and see God's immense compassion for us and His obvious desire to reach us in the midst of our brokenness, it can change our perspective in life. Let me give you three. There's a ton, but let me give you three. One, we know that we can turn to our Creator for comfort and guidance no matter how we are living. Let that set in. No, we Know that we can turn to our Creator for comfort and guidance, no matter how we are living. That doesn't matter what you are up to over the last hour, week, month. It doesn't matter how you are living your life, how immoral and anti-biblical you happen to be living. God is waiting for you to turn to Him and say, save me, comfort me, give me guidance, show me a better way to live. He's not looking for you to get right in any way other than to fall before him and say, I need you, help me. That's all he's looking for. And he wants to pour that compassion upon us. Number two, we can embrace the hope that God is for us, regardless of the pain we may be facing. Man, this world can be no good at times, right? Right? There's so much pain and misery that can come our way. But we know that there is a God, the creator of all, that that desires to comfort us, to guide us, to bring us through it. He's not standing idly by waiting for things to play out. He desires to intimately be involved in the midst of our suffering. And the third one, we see that we should have compassion for the broken that are in our midst. You know, Genesis 1, 26, 27 says that we are created in God's image. If we are created by a God who has compassion for the broken. We are created to have compassion for those who are broken around us. Regardless of what they're going through or how bad it is, we are called to have a heart to help them. I know there's a lot in here. Honestly, I think whenever we sit before somebody talking about the Bible or hopefully bringing truth, just pick one thing to walk away with and meditate on. Just one. Because if we're honest with each other, we're like a bunch of middle schoolers sitting here looking like grown-ups, right? (laughs) Brain is going everywhere, phones are buzzing, there's no way. So just grab one nugget that the Spirit is pointing out to you and just take that. You know That's why I teach it, so I can have the the uh, incentive to just study and pour into it for my life. You know, what you guys get is up to you. Okay, so the third thing I think Mark is bringing is about us, his followers. Jesus' followers are flawed but still given a role in his ministry. You know, like I mentioned earlier, Jesus does not change. He was there, he died, he was resurrected, made perfect, but his character does not change. So the Jesus that we're learning about now is the same Jesus that is. Um, and the followers, I think there's this idea of a human element, regardless of time or technology or country, there's this something within us that is so similar. And we can gain a lot from, from looking at these guys. So in the book of Mark, in all the Gospels, Jesus finds and calls his disciples at the outside of his ministry. I think it was verse... 15 or 20 in Mark in the first chapter that he calls his disciples. So right off the bat. He spends time explaining his teaching. And in a short time, he sends them out to be his representatives to the people. So we saw this in, chapter, in the first part of chapter 6. They're casting out demons. They're healing the sick. They're telling people, repent. So they're Jesus' representatives. Now to give them this type of responsibility so early on, must mean that the disciples were the elite, right? Intelligent men who knew the scriptures, who had much influence among the people, and had the same mission as Jesus, to compassionately sacrifice their own lives for the people. Is this how the disciples were? They were none of those things. They were definitely not the elite, right? They were, four of them were fishermen. Another one was a tax collector, We don't know what the occupations the other ones were, but these are just common men. They definitely didn't know as much as the scribes or the Pharisees about the Bible. They didn't have the influence over people, right? This is like a blue collar blue collar factory worker, right, standing up and speaking to thousands of people. Like why would that gain any sort of of notice? You know, and They didn't really have the same desire as Jesus to abandon their lives. It seems more like they thought he was going to bring his kingdom onto physical Israel and reign, and they were trying to like vie for higher positions in this new kingdom. So why did Jesus choose these men? They were by no means perfect, so maybe it was because they trusted him without hesitation. No matter what, they believed Jesus. And we see that's not true either. If we look at in Mark 6, where we've been looking, if we look at 35 through 37. So Jesus has been speaking to them, and then the disciples return. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is very late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy for them something to eat. So they come in and tell Jesus, you got to sh- cut it off. This is getting ridiculous. And he says to them, You go give them something to eat. Gives them a command, the, ma- the master, the sensei, the teacher. And they said, what, are we going to go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them, give it to them to eat? They're just rejecting his authority, putting their own mindset on top of his own. And we see when he's walking on the water, they saw him calm the wind not that long ago. When he's walking on the water, they freak out. Like, oh my gosh, it's a ghost. A man that they've just been spending the last year and a half with. Then he comes gets in the boat, stills the wind, and they're amazed. They just saw him still the wind like a month ago or a chapter ago, whatever that is. So these men do not trust Jesus without fault. They are not part of the prestigious. They have no influence. So why did Jesus pick them? Two things. I believe because they were willing to follow him. You see, when Jesus calls them, he says, leave everything and follow me. And in that moment, they did. They abandoned everything, as flawed as they are, they are, and as much as they would doubt him in the future, they were willing in that moment when he called him to say, "I trust you more than anything else." Second reason, I believe that Jesus called him because he understood the power of God that would work in them and through them. So there's this term called sanctification. It's this idea that God with His Spirit changes people from the inside. You know, you watch the disciples change from the first chapter into Acts, and they're utterly different men. And that's due to God's influence on them. And then we see that the reason why they were able to heal the sick, cast out demons, that had nothing to do with their own ability, was because God was working through them. So Jesus knew that the men who who were willing to trust Him, that God would work through them and in them. All right, so application, this one's easy, right? We are by no means without flaws. We got so many of them, each of us. However, God has called you to be a part of his redemption of the broken world, of Rapid City or wherever you may be. God has called you to be a part of the way that he desires to redeem that place. You know, if you wouldn't mind looking at 1 Peter 2.9, But you, believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. Why? In order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Think about that word, proclaim. That's nothing small. That's just getting out there and telling people who God is and what he's done. Now, it's important to remember that God is sovereign over time. And in the same way that he knew the time and place that he would send his Messiah, he knows the number of your days and where you will spend them. Take a moment to consider that. The one that created you understands where you're going to be tomorrow, six months, a year, five years, ten years. He knows your whole life laid out. As his child, his representative, he has plans for you to bring his compassion to this world. There's no way I can get around that. I read the Bible and I see the way that God desires to grab people that are willing to follow him and use them to bring his light. It's the same for us today. How will this happen? Two things. Same thing. Same reason why I think Jesus called his disciples. It'll happen if you are willing to entrust your life to Jesus. That initial is huge. Jesus, I've learned about you. I believe you are the Messiah. I believe that you are the way that I can be redeemed to my creator. You are a new person. But then you need to be able to continually do it. Day after day, wake up and saying, God, you cause me to wake up. You put blood in my veins and breath in my lungs I surrender to you. Show me how to live. I trust you more than I trust myself. I trust you more than I trust my bank account. I trust you more than I trust. I trust you. Willing to surrender to Him. Second thing, we have to remember that the power that is going to allow all these good things to happen is not from us, it's from God. God will work in you. He will bring up things in your mind and give you options in your life to live a better way, to remove addictions, faulty belief systems. He is continually, as the potter, forming you into the way that he wanted you to be. So he will work in you, allowing you to be a better representative of him. And he will also work through you. And if you are willing to follow him to say, I trust you, I guarantee he will have you do things that are scary. Whether that's money or jobs or whatever, he's going to push you into the unknown, make you talk to people that you normally wouldn't talk to, forgive people that you normally wouldn't forgive. Because through those acts, God's power can completely recreate people's view of him. You know, as the musicians come up, I just kind of want to give you one little last thought. You know, I know we just went through a ton of stuff. And again, like I said, I hope you can just grab a nugget and just zone my words out and simply focus on whatever the Spirit's giving you. But if nothing else, please walk away knowing that due to God's compassion for the broken, from the beginning of humanity, He planned to redeem you from whatever you may struggle with. In the past and the future, whatever you may struggle with, he has plans to redeem you. And he desires to use you to bring his compassion to this world. It's all there. You have so many opportunities simply waiting for your willingness to follow him as he leads.